why, why do we study Torah? Why is it so central in our lives? What's its role? Uh, and what does it enable us to do? So I'm going to start off by talking about kind of the, the, the perils of, of being human. Um, and this is going to be, un, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable to listen to probably because we're going to be talking about why we're hamstrung, I don't know if hamstrung, but why we're inhibited, why, why living life uh, as a human, which is something that we all try to do, uh, is difficult because we're going to have an uphill battle. Um, and I want to start maybe with the Talmud in, in Sanhedrin. It's a very interesting Talmud talks about idolatry. Uh, and we know in history, you look back in history, there were many times when the Jews, unfortunately, descended into idolatry. Uh, various times throughout history, you know, that they had kings that led them astray, or they, had, uh, they were entranced by the Gentiles, and the Gentiles all were fascinated with idolatry. And the Talmud asks the question, wait a minute, it's so illogical, it's irrational, to go and bow down to a little figurine. You know, they had these idols that were just really like, an, like, a, like a statue. And they believed that this statue had powers. To us, it sounds so nonsensical. Uh, and, you know, the, one way around that would be to say, well, the people of yesteryear, those were, you know, primitive, very primitive, very unsophisticated. Kind of these Neanderthals that believed. But the Jews weren't like that. And we look at kind of the books that were produced and the insights uh, that we have, uh, you know, to this day from the, from those time periods, these were very sophisticated people, very very clever, very intelligent, uh, and this seems so irrational. And the Talmud asks the question: Why were the Jews doing idolatry? Why was there this preoccupation, this obsession, this interest, even? And I thought this made any sense to us, right? You know, my dad would go to India frequently to, on business, and he would say that in India there's still mass idolatry, and it's just bizarre. People that are otherwise very good at business, you know, shrewd businessmen, very sharp, and then they have in the office like this little figurine, this little elephant, or you know, the cows that walk in the streets, and, and like they oh they go it's so bizarre. So Tom has a question: Why 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 do the Jews do adoption? It says like this. It's very interesting. It says that the Jews always knew that there was nothing, there was no substance in idols. They knew they knew the idols didn't have any power. That 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 wasn't. Their motivation. So why they serve? Why they worship the idols? They only worshipped to to allow them to have a permissiveness with regards to sexual activities. You know, if you're a Jew and you're part of the Jewish community and you kind of expected to behave at a certain you know level, certain degree of uh, of uh, abstinence from certain prohibited uh, relationships, and that was frustrating for some Jews. Uh, because to them, they linked the idea of being Jewish and accepting God and Torah with what comes along with that, and that's the restrictions. And they figured, hey, if we just do idolatry, we cast aside this whole God thing, right? Now there's multiple gods and the physical gods. You don't have to worry about it. Well, then you can do whatever you want. You have every, the whole world is in your, 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 your fingertips, right? You have permission to do whatever you want. So in order to get the freedom with regards to the sexuality, they did a the idolatry. 
And that's why throughout the years, that's why all the Jews are doing idolatry. That's what it says. Now, the question we have to ask is, okay, if you want to have the permissiveness with regards to the illicit relationships, just have that. Don't do something nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to say, oh, I want to do X. So I'll do idolatry in order to allow me to get to X. You're doing a double sin that way. You're doing a double sin and it's still illogical. Like if you want to do some, you know, you want to rob the bank, right? So what do you say? Well, a proper upstanding citizen can't rob the bank. So why don't I become a vagabond? And then I can rob the bank. No, just rob the bank. No, like it doesn't make any sense, right? So I think the answer is, is as follows. And the answer, can, I think, underscores uh, the problem that we have as humans. And that is that, you know, if you were to ask these people who are doing the idolatry, why are you doing idolatry? What would they say? Would they say, to allow me to do something else? Were they aware of their own biases or not? Well, probably not. And not only that, because we see, look at history, and the people were very into this whole idolatry. They were, they were into it. What the Talmud is doing, it's scraping beneath the surface. It's going to the core, kind of subconscious or unconscious causation for their problem, or for, you know, for their idolatry. And it's saying that deep, deep, deep down within them, what they were really, truly motivated by was the permissiveness. Now, to them, they didn't connect the dots. It's hard for us to know what motivates us to behave the way we do, right? And Because it's very hard to kind of look within yourself and really lay everything bare, you know, really put everything on the table. It's very hard to do. We're not used to doing that. You know, we, uh, we cover up uh, to avoid the pain of, of that kind of letting our innards spill out on the table. So these people aren't even aware of what's motivating them. And if you were to have a debate based on theological grounds. Let's see, what makes more sense? The model that the Jews have, not the one infinite God, or the models that the Romans have, 30,000 finite gods. Which one makes more sense? Well, clearly, the one God who has all power, consolidated uh, power, that makes more sense. But if you were to have that debate and you don't know the real motivation that is causing the people to do idolatry doesn't matter. Because they'll argue and they'll debate, but that's not really the point of contention. You know, if I wanted to quote the, uh, you know, rob the proverbial bank, and then I'll say, oh, you know, you know, you know what I'll do? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll become the vagabond in order to rob the bank. So you say, hey, becoming a vagabond is silly. I know this is a bad example. I know that. But, but to do that, to dress up that silly, yeah, no, it isn't. Right? Because we're not arguing on that point. It's not on that level. Right? There's a different element that is motivating my behavior. And you know, to us we say, okay, well, those are the people back in 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 history, in antiquity. The Jews doing idolatry because they wanted the permissiveness. But is it possible that today we too have these biases that we're not even aware of? And is it possible that we are arguing or, or our 
intellectual, ostensibly intellectual positions are not really a product of reason, of logical assessment and analysis, like we maybe would hope to think, but rather it's just the uh, result of what we really want. And I know that's a frustrating thing to think about. Like, wait a minute. No, like I, what I believe is what I believe. And how I behave is what I behave because that's what I think is true. That's what we would like to think. But is that really true? Is that really true? It means are we willing to expose ourselves and allow ourselves to be faced with uncomfortable situations if they're indeed true? You know, I, do we ask the question to be like that? Even though this is probably a a bad thing to do in reality. But let's say, for example, like, you know, let's say as truth seekers, we're going to get to the truth, right? Truth seekers. As truth seekers, if we were able to determine, and this is thankfully not true, but let's say we did, that radical Islam is the right way to go. Just radical Islam is, the right, is actually true. And it's just totally logical to go blow yourself up and kill as many, uh, as many uh, what do they call us? Infidels. Infidels as possible. Let's say that was actually logical. Would we do it? Would Jews do it? Well, would, would us I, in the room do it? I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. <laughs> right? I wouldn't blow myself up. Well, but the, the correct response to that question, well, yeah, may, yeah if I, maybe not. But the correct response to that question really ought to be, yeah, well, if it's true, it's true, right? If it's what's best. Now, thankfully, it's it's not what's best. But... It's very uncomfortable for us to imagine telling our family and our community and our synagogue and our neighborhood and our state and our country, I'm actually going to fight for ISIS in, in uh, I don't know where, in, uh, in, in Syria, right? In Raqqa. I'm, I'm out. Sorry, I'm out. I'm growing a beard, becoming, uh, you know, Ahmad. Right? Why would we never do that? Because it conflicts with our identity. It means there's a point at which we're not allowing truth to enter. Now, to even consider it, of course, obviously it's nonsense. I'm not, that's not my point. My point is, is that who we are and how we treat ourselves and how we view ourselves, that oftentimes is going to supersede truth. Now, I'm not saying, my point again, I just want to, just for clarity's sake, I'm not saying that the Muslims are right, they're wrong. But we wouldn't even entertain the possibility that they're right because to us, like, that's not who we are. And the question is, um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because in life, as Jews specifically, we're, we're, we're supposed to choose truth. We know that the signature, what's, what's God's signature? It's truth. Talmud says, that the symbol, the signature of God, is truth. Truth. What's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. what is wrong is wrong. There's absolute truth. And we're supposed to emulate God. And we're too supposed to seek absolute truth. But what if we don't like what we hear? What then? What if we're terrified of actually examining what's true? What if we're, we're terrified to find out what truth is and therefore we won't even pursue it? Well, that's... If you don't like it, you pursue an alternative truth. Well, but no. But there, if there's an absolute truth, or at least there's an absolute spectrum of truth... Uh, and that's something that we're fearful of, we're hesitant, will then affect in life or hamstrung. Right? You know, we're, we're going to have difficulty achieving our purpose in life 
because the truth that is demanded perhaps is going to be something that's very uncomfortable for us. You know, I'll give an example here. This is, I think, a very kind of power of example, right? Torah talks about us giving 10% of our money to charity. Um, now, 10% could be substantial, right? Well, it's 10% for who, however, however, however much you made, but it could be substantial. Uh, and the Talmud tells us, well, you give charity 10%, so you become wealthy. You're not going to lose. Never happened, never will happen. You're not going to lose. Well, yeah, that maybe is truth, but ah, 10% it could be a lot of money, right? You know? So we perhaps would have a difficulty kind of accepting that truth. And that's, I'm saying, that's a mitzvah. I think that a lot of people are very comfortable to give, and people like giving. What about things that we don't like doing? You know? What about the mitzvahs that are very difficult for us? They're difficult, but they're true. And they're demanded of us, and there's no room for wiggling out of it. They're binding for Jews. And it's true. And to us, we say, never. I can never imagine doing that. Well, what then? Right? There's something standing in the way of our maximizing our achievement in life. And, you know, because there's a point at which what we're uncomfortable with, right, could overlap with truth. And what happens then? We can't even imagine. We don't want to think we're going to look at it that way. Right? To, to us, that kind of clashes with who we are. And what happens then? Right? We'll argue. We'll say, no, I can't do that because, you know, I had a guy. This is, this is the best story. I had a guy uh, who was studying really well and he was observing more. It was great. He was really having a spiritual renaissance. And, you know, he started observing Shabbos a little bit. Fantastic. And then he said to me, well, something happened in his life and there came a point in time where observance of Shabbos was uncomfortable for him, like an hour model. So he told me, he's like, well, I can't observe Shabbos because it's possible that once I'll have a sibling that has a baby on Shabbos and I'll need to go visit them in the hospital on Shabbos and I can't observe Shabbos ever. And, you know, if I tell you that, like, is that a logical response? Is that actually, are we talking the same, are we in the same wavelength? We're not. I, you know, I, that's something so out there. It's just, you know, it's, 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 how could that be ever brought to the table on a discussion of whether someone should be Shomer Shabbos or not? It doesn't make any sense. We're talking about Shomer Shabbos. Once, you know, twice in history, maybe, you know, if we, play this out a hundred times that you'll have this instance. Right? Look at a hundred, like if we could project how many times has this happened over a hundred years? You know? That's, it shouldn't be a factor at all in our discussion. But this is the hang-up. Is that really the hang-up? That's what he says the hang-up is. But what really is the hang-up? The hang-up is, is that we reached a point for whatever reason that that became too uncomfortable for him to consider it reasonably. So I wasn't talking to him I was talking to the defenses, right, that he built to protect what it is that he wants yeah, to guard. The truth is, there's hundreds of things that he's not allowed to do. In well, that, that, that's true. But my point, is, my point is, I wasn't arguing with him. Example. Right, I wasn't arguing with him. I was, he wasn't really presenting his argument. It was an excuse. 
You know, it was a way for him to kind of find a way to make it work. Like, he wanted X, and he said, oh, I'll do idolatry to get that. And he did, to him, he didn't connect the dots. He's not connecting the dots. He's not saying, well, the reason why I want to do this is because observance of Shabbos is too difficult. He has no idea. You know, but he was hamstrung because there was something in his way and he had no idea what it was and therefore he's spit-firing ideas to try to put up a defense against what he's uncomfortable right, in confronting. And, you know, we look at, at Torah. And one of the benefits of Torah is that, you know, at least the method of study of Torah is that the goal is always to strip away all the ancillary elements of a particular issue. So uh, an example would be you have a question in the Torah, you have the Talmud talks about something, and your goal is to dissect it. Your goal is to say, okay, what is a symptom and what's a cause? Like what, what's actually affecting this particular law or this particular uh, scenario? And once you, strip, once you get to the core, once you strip it down to its core, you're able to rebuild it back and see how everything plays in together. Right? But that demands uh, intellectual integrity. It demands that you're able to actually judge things right, as what they are. You know? And the reason, there's a deep reason behind it. The reason behind it is that the Torah is truth because the Torah is what the Almighty thinks. So it's kind of linked to this absolute truth. And therefore, the only way to understand it is if you find that same wavelength of pursuit of truth. If you're not pursuing truth, Torah won't really connect to you. It won't. Because the Torah is, this is it's giving you truth. And then if you're crooked, right, if you're not acclimated to the same wavelength, right, what happens? You don't understand it. So you study Torah, and that helps you straighten out the way you think. It teaches you how to think in an unbiased way. And when you have that, you know what you have? You have freedom. Now, why do I say freedom? What does Torah have to do with freedom? Now, it's not what I'm saying. It's what the Mishnah says. The Mishnah says that you only have a free person, someone who studies Torah. Free person. Well, what does Torah say? Let's, let's, let's examine. Torah says, don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. There's just a whole list of stuff. That's not freedom. Right? What is freedom? Freedom is the ability to do things, right? You open the Torah, and it's primarily a book of things you can't do. How is that freedom? Is that a good question? I think so, no. The mission tells us that you have no free person besides for the person who studies Torah. So if you study Torah, you're a free person. If you don't study Torah, you're not a free person. Well, well, let's examine what the Butch says. Butch says a whole long laundry list of things that you cannot do. So you are with, you're withheld from behaving in a multitude of ways. Right? You, you're handcuffed, so to speak. So that's not freedom. That's the opposite of freedom, right? But you're allowed, you're allowed to do anything else. Well, okay, but you're certainly allowed to do anything else if you don't have Torah. But if you don't have Torah, you can do anything. There's no restrictions. So then you're more free if you don't have Torah, correct? Yeah. That's what it would seem, right? But you're, but you're free to impose you're on other people's freedoms then. Huh? So you're giving up sort of this inherent wisdom. So you think you're 
it's really a matter of what you want to use your freedom to do. So if you want to use your freedom for good, then you'd study Torah. And you'd well, but that's Torah. not what it says. The mission says the only free person around is the one who studies Torah. But wait, no. Studying Torah is encroaching on your freedom. That's what you, that's what you and I would have thought. But, if I, but if, I, if I observe the Torah, I'm not encroaching on anybody else's freedom. Well, that's true. Know. But if you don't study Torah as well, you maybe are not as well. So you're from somebody, you're encroaching on their freedom. Okay, so, uh, so I think Trevor hit the nail on the head by saying that, yes, if you study Torah, you may be bound, but to the degree that you're bound to Torah, you're actually absolved from submission to your instincts. Now, I'll explain what that means, right? We have the guy who says, well, these things I can't do, right? These things, whatever it is, the Torah says, oh, observe shops. Oh, too far, too much beyond me. I, that I can't do. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when you can't do something? You won't. Huh? You won't. Not only that, it means you're enslaved. There's a certain mode of behavior that you can't go away from. Well, what, what's the definition of slavery? There's restrictions on your behavior, right? There's ways you can behave and ways you cannot behave, and ways you must behave and ways you can't imagine behaving. Well, someone who says, I can't ever see myself observing Shabbos. Well, what does that mean? To a certain degree that they are... Incapable. They're, well, they're constricted. Right? They're submitted to their instincts. Now, what happens when someone studies Torah... Yes, they become, they become uh, submitted as well to God. But when they become submitted to God, they free themselves of their instincts. Everyone in the world is a slave. Everyone. The question is, to whom? You're either a slave to what's called your Yetzirah, evil inclination, or you're a slave to God. We're all slaves. The only people that free themselves from the oppression, from the oppressive grips of the Yetzirah, are the people that have Torah. The people that they learn how to study and therefore they learn how to see clearly and, and to be truth seekers, and therefore they free themselves from the shackles of the Yetzirah. True, by that they become committed to God. True, but they're freer than anyone else in the world. And I'll just wrap this up with a nice little cherry here, guys. Talmud says as follows. The verse says, you should not have within you a foreign God. Now, it's one of the many verses in the Torah to tell us not to do idolatry. But if you listen to the words carefully, it doesn't seem to be referring to idolatry. It says, you should not have within you an idol, a foreign God. That means within you. Within a person, there's the foreign God. So Thomas says, wait a minute. What's this foreign God that's within a person? There's no foreigner within you. There's a foreigner on the corner, uh, on the mantle, right? A lot of places to put a foreign God. Not within you. No one's, you don't swallow it. Right? Thomas says, no, 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 no. It's referring to the Yetzirah, to the evil inclination. The evil inclination is the foreign God that's, with, that's within each and every one of us. Now, why is it a God? It's maybe a force. Why is it a God? The answer is, because a God, right, the, the definite, it's a power. It's a power that wields control over us. And yes, right, to a certain extent, to the degree that we cannot free ourselves from what it tells us to do, it's our God. 
And it's a foreign God, but it's within us. We have a foreign God within us telling us, manipulating us, telling us how we have to behave. We're not free men. Right? We are slaves. We're slaves to the eight that's within us. And the Torah teaches us to walk away from that, to abandon that, to free ourselves, become free people. Yes, how do you, the only way to free yourself of the Yitzhah is if you transfer your, your allegiance, your commitment from the Yitzhah to God. That's the, that's the way it is. And I, and I know this maybe sounds depressing. All, all humans are, are slaves. The question is to whom? Yeah, but that's the reality. And if you think about it logically, it makes sense. If you're not committed to God, then what does that mean? There are things that you're not willing to look at. You're not willing to consider. Well, why not? Because you're bound. You're restricted. You're enslaved and submitted to the Yetzirah. And it's just interesting that the Talmud tells us that, that this is how we, one of the ways that we free ourselves is, is through Torah study. You know, I, we can talk about what a yeshiva looks like. And I, I think if you haven't been to one, uh, you owe it to yourself to just maybe find out if they have YouTube clips or whatever, but to take a look at what goes on in the yeshiva. I, I know I spent many years in yeshiva. Uh, it's, it's an experience that's not replicated anywhere else in the world. There's, there's no other place that you can find it. Um, you know, just imagine a room, just an enormous room with a thousand or two thousand scholars uh, sitting in the room on long benches with stenders, right, with those stenders, those wooden little lecterns, and all in groups of two, and they're just screaming at each other on top of their lungs. And you walk in, you're like, like this, this is a mental home, right? That's <laughs> what you would think, right? You walk in, and you see a bunch of young, energetic, uh, adolescent and, and young, young, young men, they're all screaming, uh, screaming at, at the person sitting next to them on top of the lungs. It seems, seems very bizarre. Yeah. Obviously, it's, it sounds very bizarre. And not only that, the reason why, one of the reasons why they're screaming is because everyone else is screaming. You know, it's kind of like the only way to, to be heard at the stadium is if you scream louder than the guy next to you, right? Because otherwise, you'll be drowned out. I remember there was a guy. I remember there was a time when I was in a particular uh, base mentorship. Base mentorship is like the, the building in which or the room in which we studied. And um, when I was in the biggest biggest of the world in Israel, the Miri Shiva, they have like uh, seven or eight or ten uh, different base madrasas. Um, one of them was this room that was clearly not designed to be a, a, a place to study because it was really long, really narrow, and really short ceilings. So it was like a like a like a almost like a like a like a tunnel of sorts. And the acoustics there were just insane. And I could be 18 inches away from my study party, I couldn't hear him. Because, like, there's just so much noise. It's just a cacophony everywhere, you know? And then you got to raise your voice. I remember, like, being, like, after four hours of study, like, your throat hurts. It was bizarre. Like, maybe your brain hurts as well, but your throat hurts, you know? And, you know, that's just, that just it. But, like, you walk into a room, and everyone is just arguing with uh, arguing like just on top of their lungs and what's going on in here. The answer is when you're studying Torah, you're learning how to find the truth. So it is. It's pursuit of truth. The Talmud should be very enigmatic, very puzzling, very in- intriguing, very um, um, almost like a, uh, you know like a puzzle. 
And it's written like that deliberately because it's, it's, it's to maintain the flavor of, of, of scholarship, of study, that there always was amongst the Jewish people. And the only way to understand what's going on is if you really put your mind to it and you really try to plumb to the depths of what's being uh, conveyed in the pages of the Talmud. And the only way to do it is if you really think, and you really try to think logically. And you say something, and your karusa says, your study partner says, well, that doesn't make any sense because of this. He says, well, well that doesn't make sense either because, you know, because what are you talking about, right? You're krum, as they say in Yiddish, right? Which means you're corrupted, like your brain is corrupted. You can talk to this guy, right? The worst thing to be is to, to be in yeshiva is krum. Because if you're krum, it means... You can be brilliant, but if you're crumb, it doesn't help, right? If you're, you know, you, uh, you know, it's like hitting a line drive, but it's all foul, right? Mm. Doesn't matter how hard you hit the ball, it's still foul, right? Mm. That's a good example. Or you're shooting a rocket ship, right? Great, you shot it fantastically, but you're off the mark. If you're off the mark, it doesn't matter, right? You're just going into the space, right? You're driving really nicely, but it's on the side of the road. And you're about to hit the tree. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. All of those fell flat. <laughs> um, and that's what it's like. And you just do this for 10, 12, 13 hours a day. And not only that, you're in an environment where there's thousands of other people doing that. What does that produce? Right? What does that do to your mind? It makes you crazy. Well, it makes you, it makes you crazy. It makes you, it makes you capable of separating truth from non-truth. And by the way, that's why so many of the, of, of, of the um, yeshiva students end up in law school. Because they don't need to be taught how to argue and how to make a convincing argument and how to present fact and how to spin things in a way that sounds... Right? They don't need, they've been doing that for years. They don't need to be taught how to think critically. They've been doing it ever since they were in fourth grade. You know? And they don't need to be... Uh, um, Kind of the, the world where a good argument that anyone, anyone could make a good argument and that could reach the Supreme Court, right? That's that's the world that the yeshiva, um, uh, you know, that that the that the yeshiva students have always been uh, experiencing. You know, you have a rosh yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, who is a seventy-year-old scholar, and he gets up and starts giving a lecture, and you disagree with him. So what do you do? You stay quiet? No, absolutely not. You got it from me, just start screaming. That's what you do. And he screams back at you. Make your argument. It's a meritocracy. Let's see what you got. You know? And if you're able to, to prove him wrong, you're the hero. Why? Because it's about the Torah. It's about pursuit of truth. That's all that matters. So how often did you prove the host wrong? Well, me, I, I was a little weak. <laughs> you know, but, th- but those are the great heroes of the yeshiva. The guy was able to, t- to, to argue with the Rosh Hashiva and, and, and have his case have any merit. You, why? How could you argue with the sage, with the scholar, with someone who's 55 years older than you? You're going to argue with him? He's been studying Torah for, before your grandfather was born and you're going to argue with him? Yeah, of course you are. Of course you are. That's what Torah is. Torah is the great equalizer. But what does it do to your mind? And how does it form you, form you into a thinker? Right? It's, it enables you to learn how to think. If you learn how to think, if you learn how to employ your sharpest tool in your toolbox that the Almighty gave you, which is your mind, you know, 
I think it's abundantly clear that, you know, especially when you compare us to other animals, the really the only thing that we have that makes us unique is our brains. You know, if you threw us in the jungle, mm-hmm. how long will we survive, you know, just on brute strength alone? There's not a single animal that's your size that can't just totally demolish you and maul you in seconds. Right. Why? Because the Almighty made it is that what we have is our brain. That's what makes us human. But we can have a brain that's very powerful, but underdeveloped, underused, and not sharpened, and crumb, a stew, a rye. And then it's unfortunate because our most potent weapon is being used for, you know, for, for it's being used improperly. It's like the guy who, who, uh, I'm, I'm, it's not a bad metaphor, but the guy who only uses his phone in airplane mode. Mm-hmm. It still works, right? It's still able to do complex calculations. But it's in airplane mode. You can't have phone calls, there's no internet connection, you can't do Wi-Fi. But it's still good, right? It's still powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. But you know what your phones can, phones can do nowadays? You know how powerful they are, these computers? Mm-hmm. You know what, how much they can access the whole world is out there? And you're putting on airplane mode. How do, we, how do we kind of uncork our, our, our minds, our brains with Torah? That's how we do it. And I'll say, well, well, we study Torah. What do we get out of this, right? We, we read the Torah. Great. Is that the yeshiva learning that's going to really revolutionize the way we think? I think there's a little, a little tip here. The way you do it, the way you, you do Torah at this level is you have to ask questions. And never stop asking questions. And when you don't stop asking questions and you ask more and more questions, you get, start getting answers. And start thinking sense. So you get this answer on your own. And don't wait for people to give you answers, right? Come to the answers on your own. So you open up a page of Talmud and you say, okay, this page of Talmud has enough wisdom to change the world. That's your attitude. This page of Talmud has enough wisdom to change the world. Any, any, page, any one of the 2,711 pages of the Talmud has that power. Any single one of them. The question is, can you reveal it? Can you be the one who exposes it? Will it expose some of it? Can you? Maybe. Maybe not. Right? <laughs> But you, theoretically, you can, right? How are you going to do it? Now, I, I don't know if I mentioned this story. I don't know if I mentioned this story last time. Uh, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But there was a guy, I think I did. There was a guy who overheard someone saying um, to someone else. So three parties here. One guy hears a second guy tell a third guy that, oh, this page of Tom is very dry, very dry. Doesn't have the same flavor. It's kind of boring. So he says to himself, Torah is boring. Torah doesn't have any flavor. Torah is dry. God forbid we can't say that. Can't say that. He says, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this page of Talmud and I'll show you why it ain't dry. Take the page of Talmud, asking questions, delving in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And he wrote two lengthy essays on Torah wisdom and insights from that particular page of Talmud. Every single little bit of Torah 
has endless depths. You know, we talk about the Torah is compared to water. Many times the Torah is compared to water. Um, why, what's the comparison? Well, there's a few comparisons. First of all, water is necessary for life. Torah is necessary for life. You don't have Torah, well, you're lacking some part of life. Another thing the Talmud says is that water pools to its lowest point. So you put water on a mountain, it doesn't stay in the mountain. It goes deep, 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 all the way to the bottom, to the, to, 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 to the valley. Lowest part. So too, Torah goes to the low. Who are the low ones? The ones that have humility. Humility. If, you, if, you, if you're humble, if you're receptive, then Torah influences you. You've got to be low. And lastly, well, lastly, but there's more examples, but Torah is like water. What happens? You go to Venice Beach, right? You're in Venice Beach, California. Beautiful beach. It's, oh, yeah, I know. On the beach. That's right. Awesome. Uh, so you're on the beach, and you're like, oh, this is the Pacific Ocean. Right? I could, you continue your straight, you'll get to, to, to Asia. Pretty awesome, right? You say, okay, well, let's see. Let's, let's go on the beach. So you walk in. And you're like, oh, this is not so deep. It's only up to my ankles. What's wrong with that? You're like, hey, I can walk from here to Japan. No problem. I never need to swim. It's only up to my ankles. The answer is, well, well, okay. Walk a little further, and it's deeper. Walk a little further, and it's deeper. But you, ha- you would have no idea. If you just stood there and said, okay, well, I'm walking in. It's up to my ankles. Great. You would have no idea. Right? Okay, maybe it's a little, little, little deeper, but that's it. This, this is how it is. I'm in the water. Am I in the water? Yes, I'm in the water. There you go. It's up to my ankles. It must be up to my ankles. Right? Torah is like water. The further you get into Torah, the more vast and deep the Torah becomes for you. You know, I've had people that tell me, listen, Rabbi, what's this whole obsession with Torah study? Yeah, I've been there. I did six weeks of preparation for my bar mitzvah. I did it. I'm an expert. And you know what? They're right. Because they only walked in one foot. They're like, oh, this is it. It's up to my, my ankle. This is what it is. I've seen it. I've been there. I'm, I did it. I checked that box. I'm done. And then you have people that spent their whole life studying Torah. And they're all the way at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And they're all the way, uh, I don't know, at, uh, uh, at Midway. And they're like, well, the Torah is pretty deep. And it's deeper. Deeper than you can imagine. More vast than you can imagine. As far as you go, as far as I can see, as deep as you can imagine. That's what Torah is like. We determine how valuable, not how valuable, but how expansive and how exhaustive it is. You know, it's unlike any other subject. Like this is, I know we've stressed this point, we'll stress it again. There's no comparison, there's no subject like that. There's no subject like that. Yes, there's advanced chemistry or advanced physics, you know, and, and I, would, I, would, I would say to a certain degree, well, yeah, physics is also uh, part of science, and science is the will of God, and therefore it has the same realm to it. But when you study physics, like this is it, like the book, this is what it is. Instead of the Torah, it's just gateways. It's just the beginning. It's a portal. It's a portal that goes deeper and deeper and deeper as far as you can imagine. You know, getting back to where we started, there's, a, there's an amazing story in the Torah that is repeated um, 
repeated, which is always bizarre. You know, the Torah has certain instances where it says a story and an episode, and then it says it again, and seemingly it's identical. Um, some people, unfortunately, have taken, it to, to, have taken these instances with the called doublets to conclude that the Torah has multiple authors, they put it all together, which is, I'm saying, it's nonsensical. But um, uh, there, are, there is that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but some episodes are clearly one episode, but it's repeated. And that would essentially, um, that would mitigate the whole argument of the Torah wouldn't repeat itself. It means, what does the argument go? Hey, if it was one author, the author wouldn't repeat himself. So the fact that the author repeats himself must be it's two authors. Well, what if I could prove to you that it's essentially one author because it's the exact same story, word for word, almost word for word, and it's repeated. It must be that even the same author would have frequently repeated. And when you open the Talmud and you see a double in the Talmud, the Talmud will decipher what is the reason why this was repeated. And one of these examples is where Eliezer, the slave of Abraham, is sent to go find a spouse for Isaac. You guys remember that in Genesis? So he sent him and he says, listen, there's only one condition. Don't let Isaac marry one of the Canaanite girls. And then he says, well, what if the girls don't come back with me? He says, well, if she don't come back with me, with you, then she is, you are absolved of your oath. Make an oath, he makes the oath, and he goes. And he gets there, and he meets Rebecca, and he asks for the water, and she gives water to the camels, and he meets her family. And he sits down with the family, and he tells them the whole story. I'm the slave of Abraham. And Abraham said, go east, and go find a spouse for a son Isaac. And I said to him, what if I don't, you know, and, but don't, I make you swear, don't take a girl from, 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 from Canaan. And I said to him, well, what if the girl doesn't want to come with me? And he says, well, if she doesn't want to come, she absolved. And I went, and I met, and I met Rebecca, and I did the water, and this and that. And here I am, right? He repeats the whole story almost verbatim. Rashi points out that there is a slight difference in one word um, between the two narratives. In uh, the first time, it says the word ulai, which means perhaps. It says it with a vav. The second time, it says it without a vav. As we know, Hebrew is a, is, is a language in which the vowels are often in the form of nekudot. If you open up a Torah story, you see no nekudot. Right? However, there are other instances where vowels are actually put in the form of a letter. So, for example, the word ulai is aleph, lamed, vav, uh, aleph, lamed, yud, but sometimes this aleph, vav, lamed, yud. Correct? And Rashi points out that the first time it says it with the vav, aleph, vav, lamed, yud, and the second time it says without the vav. So why, why would it spell differently in, 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 in the same repetition of the story? Rashi says that the word ulai, when spelled aleph lamed yud, should also be read as elai. means if you, if you change the nukudot, it could pronounce elai, which means to me. And what Eliezer was really saying was, perhaps the girl won't want to come with me but then Isaac will be for me because Eliezer had his own daughter and he would have loved nothing more than to marry his own daughter to Eliezer. And therefore, what was really motivating his question as to what 
uh, do I do if the girl does not want to come back west with me? What was really motivating the question was his interest in having Isaac be married to his own daughter. So here we have an example of someone asking a question, but really the motiva- what's really going on deep down in this unconscious part of his life is he really wants to know, is there any way I can usurp Isaac for myself? At the time, he had no idea. It was Ulai. It was spelled with the extra vav. There was no ambiguity whatsoever. And he was saying, what do I do if the girls want to come back with me? Later on, post facto, he realizes his bias. He says, ooh, I said Ulai, but what I really meant was Eli for me. And what does that tell us? That tells us that even someone like Eliezer, even someone who is you know, one of the great um, one of the great personalities in Genesis, right? He's the slave of Abraham. Abraham trusted him with his own son. Think about that. But what does that mean? Who is this guy? He's a great guy. But even he, he's not necessarily in control of what's really motivating his behavior. He's asking a question. What he really means is something entirely different. And if he's like that, we certainly are like that as well. And for us, it is imperative that we find a way to um, uh, untether uh, and unshackle our intelligence and our capabilities to be used for, for good. And one way we have, one indispensable tool that we have to do that is Torah. Uh, so I know this was a little bit of a long-winded way of saying it, and I wanted to do that. Um, but what we find is when someone studies Torah seriously, they're able to achieve unbiased intelligence. And unbiased intelligence can change the world. And that's what we have, we're obligated to do as Jews. And, um, you know, that's that's just kind of presents to us a life challenge, you know. That all of us, <laughs> all of us have something within ourselves that is this God, so to speak, that's motivating us. And to us, it looks like freedom, but really it's, it's enslavement. And if you do the math, it is, right? If we can't behave any differently, then what does that show? What does that mean? It means we're submitted to it. Okay, we're submitted to it. How do we free ourselves? With Torah. A powerful, powerful lesson. And um, 